So it was, um, I was very touched today by the exercise that you all did, the feeding the demons and how, how wholeheartedly you participated and your sharing and all that. And it really, there were many, many things learned, I think, from it. But one is just the, um, the power that we have. I think this is, could you turn it down a little? It echoes. Is that better? Yeah. The power that we discover as we practice of this simple act of bringing our loving attention to our experience, to others, to the world, that it has a real transformative power in it. Mindfulness is sometimes called bare attention. And it has the qualities of openness, non-judgmental, it's non-judgmental, it's fearless, it can just be there. It's patient, it's not in a rush, it has the capacity (coughs) to open and be there. And it's impersonal. It's not imbued with our personality (coughs) or anything. It's like a mirror. It just shines its light on whatever is reflected in front of it. So just to appreciate the power of that as, as an aspect of what we bring to our experience. When I started this practice, um, I was already in the middle of my life, you could say. I was almost 40 years old. I had quite a bit of, you know, lived experience behind me, having lived uh, already a pretty full life. I had gotten a PhD in clinical psychology. I had lived in New York City for 10 years, and I had been married, and, you know, I was not a, I was, I guess what they call an adult. (laughs) Anyway, I went on a three-month course in Barrie, Massachusetts. It was one of my first retreats, actually. And um, I was really amazed by what I bumped into in myself having had so much life experience, having been in therapy, having been a therapist. I was amazed that I bumped into the amount of fear, the amount of grief, the amount of a kind of obsessive longing in me. I didn't know these things about myself. There's a big, there's, there's somewhat of a difference between therapy and meditation. And one of the biggest differences is that in meditation, you're all alone on your cushion. Nobody there to talk about it with. You meet with a teacher now and then, but most of the time, 24-7, you're, you're on your own. And I had never really faced being with myself in that with that quality of intensity before, being with myself in that continuous way. I mean, there was very little to distract myself, not nearly as much distraction as you have here (laughs) in the cold New England winter. 
whoa. So I, I just was amazed that I had this fear and this grief and this obsessive longing. And if it wasn't one playing, it was another. You know, they pretty much replaced each other. And it was challenging. It was a very challenging experience. And happily, I can also report (laughs) that it was one of the biggest, most life-changing experiences of my life up to that moment, up to that time, because I really saw what the Buddha was talking about. I really saw the truth of suffering. And I really saw that there was a possibility for that suffering to, if not completely end, to diminish greatly. That I could have a a relationship with that which was so troubling, the fear, the grief. I I could actually have a workable relationship with those things. And it was very empowering, I would say, that time of practice I got a real sense of the power of this simple but not easy practice of being with things moment to moment as they are. So tonight I want to talk about, um, I I want to share some stories from the Buddhist tradition primarily about how it is that we can meet this suffering and how it is that this suffering can come to an end. Because this is what the Buddha taught over and over again. He said, I have one teaching and one teaching only, suffering and the end of suffering. So this, what I learned from my experience was that I had entered what is called a Dharma door. Through facing our suffering, we see a potential that we didn't know exists. And we walk through that doorway and we have entered a new world. There are other Dharma doorways as well as suffering, often the experience of impermanence, of sudden life changes, a death, a diagnosis, an illness, a loss. These are also Dharma doorways. They awaken us to a reality about life that we had not perhaps really taken in before. We also can uh, enter the Dharma through experiences of many of the beautiful states of mind, experiences of, of interconnectedness and love, experiences of joy and peace. Those can also be Dharma doorways. So. It's not only the bad, (coughs) difficult news that brings us to practice, it is sometimes the joyous news as well. So tonight I'd like to share some stories about meeting suffering and how it is that the suffering comes to an end. So the first story I'd like to share is that of Milarepa. He was a Tibetan yogi and saint who spent many years in solitude. He loved being out in the mountains by himself. He lived very simply. And this story is about how one day he came back to the cave where he was living, having 
been out gathering some roots and berries to eat. He came back to his cave and he was uh, met there by a gang of demons, seven of them, as a matter of fact. And he became very frightened. Seven demons were waiting for him. Now, obviously, these are a, a, a colorful way of talking about the same things that we were exploring today, these, these obstacles of mind. But they were there, they were very real, and he, of course, began to try to get rid of them, because that's what we try to do. So he dragged out all his spiritual tricks. He, um, he threatened them, he, had, he tried uh, meditating and ignoring them and hoping they would go away. He preached the Dharma to them. <laughs> he chanted mantras and magical sounds, but nothing worked. They just thought he was being silly. So eventually what he had to do was to drop all his strategies and actually approach them with a, with a friendlier and more curious attitude. He sang to them. He said, you non-human demons assembled here are obstacles. He offered them a drink of friendliness and compassion. And when he did this, this friendliness, um, for three of them, that was enough, and they vanished. They went away. But there were still four left. So he had to summon more confidence in himself and become even more attentive to the four that were still there, more welcoming, more open. So he said to them, it is wonderful that you demons came today. You must come again tomorrow. <coughs> From time to time we should converse. In this atmosphere of friendliness, three more vanished like a rainbow. So there was one left, and Milarepa realized that this one is vicious and very powerful and would, would take even more um, kind of opening. So he did. He drew closer and overcame his resistance to meeting the demon. But he said, demon, if you were to stay here longer, that would be fine with me. If you have friends, bring them along. <laughs> We will talk out our differences. Ah, me, I feel compassion for this spirit. He opened him his heart. He said, okay, come here, live with me. It's a fine, no problem. And then he made the final gesture, it is said, with friendliness and compassion and without concern for himself, Milarepa placed himself in the mouth of the demon, at which point the demon vanished like a rainbow. So that was his journey of 
working with his suffering, his demons. There's another character in the Buddhist uh, tradition that is very colorful character. His name is Angulimala. And he was essentially a, a youth who went uh, awry. He, he went astray. He, he started out uh, really a good boy, but he fell in with the wrong crowd. And he was badly influenced in his youth and ended up being challenged to go out and murder people. Um, and he was, it was sort of like you could think of a, a gang initiation, go out and murder people and bring back a finger from each of your murder victims. You need to murder a thousand people. So he set about doing this and he had uh, gathered incredible weapons and he would lay in wait for travelers on the road and m he murdered 999 people. He was a serial killer. And he, he had put these fingers, he had made a garland of these fingers, and he wore them around his neck. 999 victims down, one to go. Who should he bump into but the Buddha? And the Buddha was warned not to go into this forest because Angulimala lived in there. But the Buddha, knowing something, went anyway. And Angulimala saw the Buddha and followed close behind the Blessed One. The Blessed One, knowing that Anguli, Angulimala was approaching, performed a feat of supernormal power so that Angulimala, though walking as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Buddha, who was walking at his normal pace. The banded Angulimala thought, I don't know what's happening. I, I, I am walking as fast as I can, but I cannot catch up with this monk who is walking at his normal pace. So he stopped and he called out to the Buddha, stop, Reculus, stop, monk. At which point the Buddha said, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. Angulimala was very confused. He said, while you are walking, monk, you tell me you have stopped. But now when I have stopped, you say I have not stopped. I ask you now, O oh monk, what is the meaning of this? How is it that you have stopped and I have not? To which the Buddha replied, Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings, but you have no restraint towards things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped and you have not. When Angulimala heard these words, a great change of heart came over him. After all, it was the Buddha talking. And he realized that the 
Buddha standing before him was no ordinary being, but the Blessed One himself. And he knew intuitively that this man had come to the forest out of compassion to pull him back from the bottomless abyss of misery into which he had tumbled. Moved to the very roots of his being, he threw away his weapons and pledged himself to adopt a totally new way of life. I will indeed renounce the evil that I have done. And so saying, he took his sword and weapons and flung them away and bowed to the Buddha's feet and then asked for ordination as a monk. And as in all good Buddhist stories, he, of course, became fully enlightened and led a happy and um, uh, yes, it was an ever after kind of story. So this idea of stopping is what intrigues me in this story, is this idea that if we look at it metaphorically, that sometimes we get engaged in patterns of behavior that are just seem to repeat on and on, and we seem trapped in them. And then sometimes a moment will come when we just say, enough. I can stop. This is, this is no more. We have all perhaps bumped into those moments in our lives. It's a little mysterious how they come about, just as in the story. But still there is that possibility of us saying to ourselves, enough. That's the end. I will not go down this path again. So that's another uh, story of coming to the end of something. The third story I want to share is more contemporary, uh, based in the life of a Vietnamese nun who during the war in Vietnam worked with Thich Nhat Hanh in helping villagers rebuild their lives and their villages after the bombs had come. And she talks about one time when the village that she was trying to help during the war had been bombed uh, four times. They would bomb and then they would rebuild and bomb and rebuild and bomb and rebuild. And she said, I remember, this is Sister Chen Kong, she said, I remember at that time I was very angry, very frustrated. Everybody was. A number of young people were carried away by anger and they uh, would first join the communist side and then they would join the American side and they got very confused. She says, when you are angry and carried away by your angry, this is not a good time to act. She said, in this practice we have to stop thinking, stop acting, go back to our breath, 
to restore the clearness of our mind before making any action. So she did. She released the tension and tried only to dwell in the present moment. And at that moment, I saw a little flower make her way through all the ruin of all the bombing. There was one little flower still blooming in the midst of that ruin, and I was truly moved. I could see, oh, the little flower has done her best. Why not me? And so I tried to look deeper. I looked around and I saw so many people who suffered. And I also saw there were quite a few angels in the midst of that ruin, many bodhisattvas, including that little flower. I had to do my best to go in the direction of that beauty. I saw that life is not only cruelty and confusion and ignorance, But life also has many heartful people, wonderful people, who are trying to do their best. You don't need to see 10,000 flowers in order to see that so much beauty in life is waving to you. You only need to see one little flower. Not giving up in the midst of suffering, not giving up on the potential of this goodness of human beings, not giving up on on our own potential to do the right thing, not giving up on others. So these are three stories, all quite different, but all speaking of a certain capacity that we have inside of ourselves. And it was certainly something that I discovered, and still discover in my own practice, this capacity that sometimes seemingly miraculously appears when we think (coughs) we are really stuck or caught in something, and suddenly something appears that we could not have anticipated, that we didn't really know about. And there it is. Trungpa Rinpoche talked about the bravery required to to practice, to take up this journey of awareness. And he said, you need to be a warrior. And the key to warriorship is not being afraid of who you are. That is the definition of bravery, not being afraid of who you are, not being afraid of all that arises in your experience, all the demons, the demons of fear, longing, grief, anger, shame, whatever it is. So practice challenges us, and it also opens us beyond what we know or think is possible. Our sense of capacity changes as we practice, as we meet these challenges. One of the things that really struck me when I started practice and still encounter in, in this tradition is that many of us were raised not as Buddhists, but as Christians, or Jews, 
many people who were raised in the, in the Christian tradition, not all, but many, have been imprinted with an idea of original sin. How many of you had some imprinting in that direction? Yeah. So when we come to Buddhist practice, often uh, what I see in, in students uh, is this, this imprinting gives often a feeling of unworthiness or of not being good enough or not trusting in one's innate goodness. Now, what is striking is that in the Tibetan tradition in particular, I would say, the idea is quite opposite. The idea is that humans are born with original goodness, original purity of heart and mind. And they grow up in a culture which really supports that notion, supports the notion that there is this Buddha nature that all human beings possess, this original goodness and purity of being that we can count on when life is challenging, that we can be sure to cultivate in ourselves and to awaken in ourselves. That this capacity to awaken is inherent in human nature. It's a very different sort of paradigm for what a human being is and the capacity that we all have. And I think it takes us as Westerners a little longer to really feel into that and, tr- and trust that. A sutra says, the mind is radiant, is glowing, is shining forth. Meditation is a process of uncovering what veils this natural radiance of mind, this natural purity of being. This is the potential that we all have. It infers that we can trust this quality of natural wisdom. This is what awakens as we let go of our conditioning, our reactivity. It means we can trust in this unknown capacity, allowing it to emerge more and more into consciousness. And it is very much what allows us to take the risk of letting go into the unknown. There's a a woman whom some of you may have met named Charlotte Selber. Have you bumped into her? She lived in the Bay Area. She lived to 102. She, she um, knew, knew the preciousness of every moment of life and loved to teach from that, from that joy of being. And she says, we have been thoroughly deprived of trusting the inner wisdom which each person has in him or herself. There lies great unused richness in us, which we gradually have to dig out and develop. When you get to it, you will be astonished by what comes into the open, which you didn't know was there. I'll leave this book here if you, any of you want to look at it. So all the practices we are doing here, in a way, are, are ways of awakening 
and learning to trust more in this natural intelligence, this natural quality of wisdom. It has its own timing and its own way of revealing itself. And in the silence and stillness of meditation, we may sense at times the awakening of some new way of understanding, (coughs) some new way of being open to life. And certainly in the unfolding of our painting process, in the allowing of imagery, this intelligence works its way very slowly at times and quite mysteriously opening us to new ways of seeing and perceiving. And sometimes I feel the painting, you could say, is ahead of the conscious mind. In fact, Natalie Goldberg, the writer, tells a story, if I can find it, but then again, maybe I forgot it. Well, oh, here it is. She tells a story of, um, she was a student of um, Katagiri Roshi, and she did koan practice with him, where she had to... um, their way of teaching in that tradition is by solving koans, the sort of paradoxical questions that you can't solve through your rational mind. She was working on a koan, and at the same time she was doing a lot of painting. So she couldn't get the answer to a koan she was working on, but she brought a painting that she had been working on into her interview with Katagiri Roshi. And she said to him, I, I know the answer. I feel like it's very close, but I can't quite express it in words. And then she held up this painting she had done. And he said, yes, you have it in your imagery, in your picture. And now you need to get it in you. You need to let it come into consciousness. I think that's such an interesting story because it it speaks very much, I think, about how the painting informs us. It's always a little bit ahead of us, perhaps. It's also true that when we express ourselves creatively, um, a certain kind of healing, a certain kind of transformation of that which is difficult in our lives can occur. I read a story about a screenwriter who was asked to write a screenplay about Napoleon for the movies. And his first reaction was like, ooh, I don't like Napoleon. You know, I don't really want to write a screenplay about this guy because he really had strong feelings about not liking Napoleon. He said, this megalomaniac, hungry for power, this dictator, this murderer of a million French people. But he took the job anyway. And he said, "Um, I was fascinated. He said, it's like being fascinated by the devil. Yet, he says, in writing the story of Napoleon's life, I literally fell in love with Napoleon. I discovered a character light years away from everything I had imagined. 
a genius about whose impressiveness, modernity, and humanity I had had no knowledge. This came from writing about him. So he opened himself to this totally different experience of something he thought he hated. There's a kind of alchemy that can occur when we express ourselves creatively. The same can often happen in meditation. When we fully meet all aspects of our difficulties, when we fully meet our demons, we get to know them intimately. And something in that begins to transform our experience. It may be as simple as meeting the pain in your back or your knee. When we fully meet it, when we fully allow what we call pain to be felt, it, it loses its separateness as pain. Nisargadatta uh, an Indian teacher, saint, says this. He says, the essence of pleasure is acceptance. Whatever may be the situation, if we accept it, it is pleasant. If it is not acceptable, it is painful. You will find in acceptance of pain a joy which pleasure cannot yield. For the simple reason that acceptance of pain takes you much deeper than pleasure does. The personal self, by its very nature, is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self, with its desires and fears, enables you to return to your real nature the source of all happiness and peace. It's an alchemical process, transforming what seems difficult, not liked, painful, through the power of our loving attention. There's a wonderful book called The The Universe is a Green Dragon, and which I forget the author's name. Brian Swim. No, it's not Brian Swim. Oh, is it Brian Swim? Okay. Thank you. (coughs) So you know this, but I, I love this quote. So here it is. Each individual person has the power of participating in the transformation of the whole planet. The evil that reaches you after so many millions of years of existence can be absorbed and transformed. You have the power to accept the suffering, to refuse to pass it on to another, to forgive, to end the needless torment, and most of all, to transmute evil into energy for the vitality of the whole. That's a powerful statement. 
but we do have this capacity. We do have it. It takes courage and it takes a great love of the truth. We need to love the truth more than we love our desire for comfort, for distraction, for not being bothered. So inherent in this Buddhist tradition is this understanding of the power of awareness to transform suffering. So to end this talk, I want to take a little journey with you through uh, what are called the six realms of existence. And sometimes they're portrayed in Tibetan tankas visually as six realms, or we could say they are patterns of fixation or repetition which keep us bound to the wheel of existence. So often they're portrayed in a circle as the wheel of samsara, the patterns which keep us bound and to which all beings are subject. So the first of these realms is the hell realm. The second of these realms is the animal realm. Then there is the realm of the hungry ghosts, the realm of the jealous gods, the realm of the gods, and the human realm. Now what's interesting, they're often portrayed quite vividly, these realms, as you can imagine, the hell realm, the animal realm, the hungry ghost realm. But visually, and Metaphorically, what's interesting is that each of these realms is also depicted with an object which depicts or, or denotes the, that we can liberate ourselves from this realm. So, for example, in the hell realm is always portrayed a bodhisattva of compassion holding a mirror for the possibility of awareness coming to a pattern of suffering. In the animal realm, there is a bodhisattva holding a book, which is, symbolizes the capacity for reflection and thinking, consciousness, that we can wake up from our animal nature. In the hungry ghost realm, there's a bodhisattva with a bowl filled with objects that can nourish and heal us, provide actual nourishment so that we're freed from our looking for nourishment from things that actually cannot nourish us. In the god realm, there's a bodhisattva playing a lute which symbolizes the possibility of awakening from the trance of being in a God realm where there is no suffering. There may not be suffering, but there's not much wakefulness in the God realms. So it's pleasant, but there's there's no awakening. And in the jealous God realm, there's a bodhisattva with a flaming sword, which is the symbol of the power to cut through the pride of the jealous gods, to cut through the deviousness and trickery of the ego. 
some of you today noticed how how devious your demons were and how you might have needed a, a flaming sword <laughs> to get through to them. And in the human realm, there is always a Buddha depicted as a symbol of the resolution of the question, who am I? The resolution of the question that all humans ask themselves at one time or another, who am I? So these symbols are meant as as indicators of always this passage, this 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 potential to awaken, this capacity to awaken from whatever pattern or fixation or trance we find ourselves in. And the Buddhist tradition is full of wonderful practices that give us the skillful means of finding more consciousness, more awakeness. And certainly on this retreat we are being given many uh, different practices through the painting, through the qigong, through the meditation for finding ways to bring consciousness into our suffering. So thank you for your attention and I have spoken for 45 minutes. I think that's more than sufficient. (laughs) (laughs) So let's just sit together for one brief moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on September 22, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.